Hello, and welcome to Preacher, a podcast designed around the reality that many of our churches are still shrinking because we're not creating places where everyone can belong. So if you're seeing that reality in your own church, or you've experienced that and left the church, this podcast is for you. So welcome. I am your host, Jen Hale Christie. Quick shout out to our awesome Patreon community, Sarah, Sheila, Steve, and Tom. I'm so grateful for your continued support. If you are listening and you haven't yet joined our Patreon community, now's a great time. You can join with a support level as low as just three bucks a month, and your support keeps this good work going, keeps all the episodes available online. So thank you. Links are in the show notes. We have a guest preacher on the podcast today. So without further ado, let's hear a word. So if you've been around me at all the past few months, it has probably come up at some point that I am taking a restoration history class right now, uh, which includes the streams of Church of Christ, Disciples, and Christian Church. The youth have endured a class about it. The Klingemans never hear the end of it. And Riley, who is in the class with me and has already heard it all, never gets a break. So I'm just going to apologize right now up front that that is what I'm interested in right now. The reason that I have to talk about it is because it is continuously blowing my mind. Have you ever had a moment where you learn something so fundamental about something that you've taken for granted? Like the fact that your elementary school teacher actually goes home and has a family? Or that the raised dots on the sidewalk are actually to stop blind people from walking into the street? Things that I never knew that are so important for me to know now. I know that we are a church full of diverse church and non-church backgrounds, but I was born and bred in the Church of Christ. And learning about a denomination that is so much a part of me has opened my eyes so much both to the beauty and to some of the crazy things that we've done and that have happened throughout our history. So I'm going to talk about the COC throughout the sermon because I am so grateful for all that it's given me. And I do care so deeply about growing and continuing to pass on the message of the gospel to those who come after us. One of my favorite things about the Church of Christ is the foundational value on which it's established. The very first thing we talked about on the first day of class before anything happened was the deep desire for unity among the founders. The things that Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and Thomas O'Kelly and all those faithful people cared about most deeply was uniting God's people for the sake of the kingdom. One of my least favorite things about that is how that value has been lost in some ways. As the movement grew, groups split off and moved away and expelled others in the name of God in a way that I think must have broken the heart of God. And so today, again, out of the deep love that I have for this denomination, we are going to look at Paul's letter to the church in Corinth as a lens through which to view our own church. So, as with any biblical text, before we can explore the depths of it, we must first dive into the world in which it's situated. Now, because I am impeccably concise and a rigorous editor, I am not going to tell you that Paul's visit to Corinth is one of the events in the Bible that we can date most precisely. Acts 18 tells us that he was there during the proconsulship of Gallio, which lasted from March of 50 AD to September of 51, which give, and we have an archaeological inscription that gives us proof of that. That information is not relevant, so I'm not going to tell it. I'm also not going to talk about the rocky history of Corinth, that it resisted the wrong conquering emperors and was destroyed, 
or that it was reestablished as a Roman colony by Julius Caesar and that it became the site of the Olympic-like contest called the Isthmian Games that brought waves of people passing through. Again, I am ruthless in cutting the fat, so I would never toss in fascinating details like that that don't serve our point. What is important is that, is that Corinth was home to a transient population, people on the move and people on the make, as one brilliant scholar named Carl Holiday put it. Sorry, y'all wouldn't know him. The church was founded by Paul in around 50 or 51 AD, which we know because of the historical evidence that I won't get into. As with other churches Paul establishes, he maintained a close relationship with them, and it's clear by the content of 1 Corinthians that it is, in fact, not the first. The text indicates that there's another letter, maybe that came before this, and several that will come after, and that this is an ongoing conversation. The content is important and theologically informed and inspired, but it's not intended to be exhaustive. This is an ongoing conversation because the church in Corinth is struggling. It was a church caught in the middle of turbulent times surrounded by a turbulent culture. Things were messy. Things were difficult. And I know a busy, productivity-oriented, tumultuous culture is not something we can easily identify with, but just for the time, suspend your disbelief and root yourself firmly in this story. Like Christmas lights, lovingly wrapped up and gently placed in storage last year, the reasons for conflict within the Corinthian church were tangled beyond recognition. Rather than just a single issue, the church faced several intertwining and overlapping. And much like tangled Christmas lights, these were very emotional matters. Throughout the main body of the letter, Paul attends to points of conflict that have clearly come up in other correspondences. For our purposes today, I'm going to divide them into sin issues and theological disagreements. We're not going to talk about the sin issues much, but the instructions include things like not sleeping with your stepmother, not cheating each other, and not worshiping idols. If you need more reasons behind these instructions, no, you don't. And also, come find me afterwards and we can talk about them. The theological issues that Paul addresses are harder to resolve. Beyond the very specific instructions that Jesus himself gave, neither Paul nor any of the other apostles were handed direct templates on how to make theological decisions. This is where a lot of the messiness comes from. These are issues that often do have emotional attachments, topics that are tied to people's innate identities or what they believe about their relationships or even their loved ones. Some concern right practices in the church, which is already at this point steeped in tradition and habit. And none of these things are let go of easily. Beyond these two issues, there are underlying tensions that weigh heavily on the church. Members are divided into factions based on what leader they follow. Some say, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Peter. Imagine that. Imagine a faith that is precious to you and has been handed on faithfully by leaders that you trust, only for others to trust other leaders. That's like saying, I belong to Luther, or I belong to Calvin, or Stone, or Campbell. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the tension and conflict that would cause? Paul recognizes this, and his response tugs at each of the intertwining vines of dissent in this community. And as a man with no sense for the dramatic, Paul tells them right out of the gate what the end goal is, unity. And this isn't a share a pew but keep quiet kind of unity, or a I'll mute you on Facebook but I won't unfollow you kind of unity. 
He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to agree together, to end your divisions, and to be united by the same mind and purpose. Tell me you hear it too. Agree together, in, decision, in divisions, have the same mind and purpose? There's only so much that one man can ask for. This is a command that even Jesus himself couldn't pull off with 12 disciples. It kind of feels like he's trying to pull all the continents back together and make a Pangea 2.0. It just feels impossible. But unfortunately for us, and maybe for Paul himself, Paul believes it. He believed so deeply and was deeply invested in the mystery of God made known to him in the reconciliation of all things and all people to and under Christ that he couldn't settle for anything less. And we can't either. Now, I'm going to ask you once again to plant your feet firmly in the chaos. Jokes aside, we're already there. The tensions and dissension and schisms that were bubbling up in Corinth are festering in America, in the church, and on some days in this church. Paul has touched a nerve here, calling for unity, because throughout the history of the church, the way we've tried to accomplish this is by splintering off with those we can agree with. If we're to agree together, then we better move away from those with whom we disagree. If we were to have the same mind, and I've already made mine up, then I have to believe that I'm right. But Paul believes in a different reality in a church that is threatening to fracture. And it's the reality of the gospel that says that people who are already moving apart can be bound together by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the same name that casts out demons and heals the sick, and the same name in which every knee, assenters and dissenters alike, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the glory of God the Father. This is the reality that Paul sees, and it's the one he will use to frame the entire rest of his letter. He says, you're arguing about which leader to follow? Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Are any of these people the reason for your hope and salvation? God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. The first and most crucial reality, part of this reality is that Paul sees is the message of the gospel of Christ that matters the most. The gospel is not any of these one people, but Christ. Corinth, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Look at the gospel. The reason we are this new body is because God acted dramatically on the cross, reconciling all things to himself and bringing about the new created order. And it's tempting at this point to triumph at the beauty of the gospel and close our Bibles and walk away encouraged this week. But the truth is the church in Corinth had genuine conflicts and differences. A simple reminder that they're supposed to get along falls a little short of helping them actually do that. Just because the gospel matters most doesn't mean that church practice and ideas and relationships do not matter. Now, we'll return to the leader controversy in a bit, but I want to look at the rest of the book. For the next five hours, I'm going to read at exegete all 16 chapters of the first Corinthians so we can see how these issues matter. Or we could sum it up like this. Simply put, some of the conflicts seem to have clear answers. You should wait for each other to eat the Lord's Supper. You should honor your spouse. 
you shouldn't speak in tongues if no one can interpret for outsiders. Some of the things in the church that the church in Corinth seemed to have to be told seem like non-issues to me, like things that are apparent. But I think back to the, the history of our own church, and I wonder what Paul would say to us. Why are you fighting over to use, whether to use one cup or many? What matters is remembering Christ's sacrifice. Why are you refusing people of color in your baptistry? Is that the way of the kingdom? And as someone with the privilege of 50 or 70 years of perspective, of course I'm able to say that. I wasn't entrenched in these issues the way that the church in Corinth or my Church of Christ predecessors were. But I wonder, in 50 years, what are the issues that I'm going to regret dividing over? What are the parts of my theology that I can soften for the sake of unity? How can I practice humility in my own viewpoints? Am I willing to sacrifice spreading the gospel or losing people in order to keep what's familiar to me? Because I definitely think these things matter. It's easy to say, let's toss out our theology and church practice for the sake of unity, but not only does that make, not make sense practically, it isn't what Paul asked them to do. When they write to him asking what to do or how to think about something, he answers thoughtfully and often shows his thought process. These are important matters, and they should be debated and contemplated and pondered, but we are not alone in this process. Paul commands the church to be of the same mind, and then he says, how can we know the mind of God? How are we possibly to discern what the creator of the universe would have us do? He tells them, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except a man's spirit within him? So too, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to advise him? But we have the mind of Christ. Not only has God active definitively on the cross for the reconciliation of the world, he continues to act through the spirit, providing spiritual wisdom for what life should look like in the in-between. We are not without the ability to discern beyond the finite matters that scripture can address. We are continually aided in spirit and in truth. Now, these, there are different gifts, but the same spirit. Be united by the same mind we have the mind of Christ. It is possible. And so all these theological and social is issues are addressed by Paul, often with him intermixing. It seems best to me, or I say, not the Lord, or I have no command from the Lord on this. But he uses the spirit and the spiritual mind that he has to give him sound advice. So we get through most of the letter using these standards. The reminder of the gospel message the discernment of the spirit, the unity of the body. And then we get to chapter 15, our text today. In chapter 15, Paul needs to answer their question about a very heavy topic. The church in Corinth has presumably written to ask what happens to people when they die. For us, who have grown up talking and singing and rejoicing over heaven, this doesn't seem like a huge deal. But for this church, it's heart-wrenching. Not only are they asking for their own sakes, but their loved ones, the ones they've already lost. 
for the people that they hold most dear that are sick. Imagine sitting by a deathbed, totally unsure of whether you will see that person again. And so Paul must address this, but he must address this even more sensitively, even more lovingly. And he begins with a reminder. He says, now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received and which you stand, through which you are also being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received myself, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. Do you remember the gospel, the one on which we're centering everything, that Christ died, was buried, and rose again? If God raised him, don't you think he's in the business of resurrection? Don't you think the souls of the people you love are important to God too? But Paul goes beyond this in his gospel message. Not only did Christ die in a salvific act of grace and rise again, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to Paul. Do any of these names stand out to you? Any of them listed in the beginning with the leader controversy? The ones that Paul reminds them are so much less important than the message of the gospel at the beginning, he says, are included here with the gospel. Not only is God at work in the gospel, he is active in moving in the transmission and the spreading of it. The people caught up in controversies also stand in line, in the line of witness, handing on the good news through the generations. Peter and Paul and Luther and Calvin and Campbell alike all faithfully lived lives of testimony of God's grace poured out on us. In grief, Paul says, I'm like a child who has been miscarried, a persecutor of the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me has not been in vain. In the midst of division and chaos and controversy, we have received the faithful witness of God's disciples. I myself am standing here because of the faithful witness of those who have gone before me. I think of T.B. Laramore, who fought to maintain unity by refusing to take sides or tell what denomination he belonged to because they're all the same. Or Selena Moore Holman, who spoke up for what she believed in despite the people who tried to silence her, or Carl Spain, who risked his own reputation to speak out against racism. I grew up hearing stories of my grandfather, Papa Dick, discerning the scripture for himself and making a faithful decision to join the Church of Christ. I was passed along tales from my Papa Harvey, who served faithfully as a missionary and preacher for the sake of the gospel, handing it down to those who would come behind And their kids sit here today, having faithfully passed it up to me. I hope that I can continue that good work. Because whether it was I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. And so today, on my last Sunday, in a church that has faithfully encouraged and empowered 
and supported me. I look at the faces of faithful witnesses who continue transmitting the gospel to me in your kindness and your hospitality. I'm leaving more sure of the grace we have received. <laughs> because when Paul reminds the Corinthian church of the people who have gone before them, he is reminding them of the gospel message those people have carried. The actions of God are the central matter in faith, and he acts power through, powerfully through the passing on of that message. So we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. In a movement whose core identity is unity, the deeper truth that Paul proclaims in these verses reverberate through our members. We are unified in the death and the resurrection of Christ. We are unified in the proclaiming of this good news, and we are unified in the mind of Christ, discerning the searchless mind of God for us. We're unified as stewards of the mysteries of God. And there's still controversy. There's still tension. But the love that binds us to Christ binds us to each other. The grave-shattering love that can supersede disorderly worship and internal lawsuits and sexual immorality in Corinth can surely speak to our conflicts of today. Nationalism and racism and repaving the parking lot and electing new leaders and LGBTQ issues all have a place in our conversations because they matter, and they're matters that submit to the gospel that we share together. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And I still don't have the answers for myself of how to respond to all these things or believe about the divisions and polarizations in our church and country. But I think that I can decide to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because if Jesus can overcome the cross, then he can overcome the grief of the broken world. He can discern alongside us the ways we should navigate and reconcile that world in real and powerful ways. It's not that the gospel matters, so nothing else does. It's that the gospel matters, so everything and everyone matter in the light of the cross. So today, rather than stand imperiously alongside Paul, I stand among the members of the church in Corinth, hearing his message, and among the members of the church of the Cuomo Road, thanking you for your faithful testimony of the gospel with me. And I implore you to link arms with those who came before us and those who will come after us and unify because of the division and the controversy, knowing that the cross is central, that we have the mind of Christ to discern faithfully together, the hard questions deserve answers, and that God continues to draw his people to himself despite our best resistance against each other in the reconciliation of his creation. Amen. If today you find yourself on the outside, without a seat at the table or a voice in the conversation, may you lean into the truth that you're always welcome in God's community. If you are one who wears the name minister, pastor, elder, shepherd, or are otherwise known as a faith leader, may you extend God's yes to those you might have said no to in the past. May you be emboldened and encouraged to honor the space that God has already created for all. Let's build bigger tables together. If something in you was stirred today, reach out. Hearing from you really does help to shape the future of this podcast. 
you'll have the greatest impact and opportunities for engagement by joining our Patreon community by clicking that Become a Patron button on our page, patreon.com slash Jen Hale Christie. And I would love for you to connect with me on Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook at Jen Hale Christie. Lastly, you would really help others to connect with this work if you would subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening and I will catch you next time.